and welcome to Hortopia the podcast. This is going to be a space where we reimagine a new world by challenging the capitalistic, patriarchal values that dominate our society. Together, we will rethink and reinvent our understanding of anything and everything, especially the institutions and ideologies that attempt to keep us in the margins. My name is Tilly, and I will be guiding you all on this journey from my own anti-capitalist, intersectional feminist, sex-positive, poor perspective. Fuck you. Pay me. Let's get into it. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Hortopia, the podcast. In case you forgot, I'm Tilly. I'm your whore of a host. And today's episode will be focusing on breaking down intersectional feminism. So before I do that, I'd like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which Hortopia is recorded on today. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and would also like to extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. Thank you. Today's episode is the second part of the three-part series called The Breakdown. And I'll be focusing on feminism, specifically the idea of intersectionality. So as sex workers, intersectionality is really crucial to our community because we are so much more than women or sex workers and the, the individual identity markers that make us all so unique all subscribe to different combinations within each of us individually. And intersectionality is the understanding that these specific intersections of these unique markers, being a woman, being a sex worker, being a person of colour, they deeply impact the way in which we are understood in this world and the power that we wield. The professor who coined the term intersectionality was a black law professor. And I think it's really important that this concept came from black women and that we remember that. Her name was Kimberly Crenshaw and she argues that not all inequality is created equal and that without an intersectional approach, we fail to recognize that people's social identities can overlap and those overlaps they create compounding experiences of discrimination. So this might not be making much sense at the moment. Let's take a deeper dive into it. Let's find out what is intersectional feminism. I think before we can truly understand intersectional feminism, we need a basic understanding of feminism. So the dictionary definition of feminism is the advocacy of women's rights to establish political, economical, personal, and social equality of the sexes. So why do we even need feminism? We need feminism, specifically intersectional feminism, because we live in an unequal world where particular identities wield more power than others. For us to understand feminism, we need to understand the different power structures that we live within. So I am going to start today with a brief chat about patriarchy. And like the previous episode, we're going to take a bit of a historical approach to the emergence of not just patriarchy, but feminism. And the historical approach will make us consider the context in which these things actually unfolded into human uh, human societies. 
And then the final part of the episode will actually go in depth and fully understand what intersectionality is specifically. Because without an understanding of patriarchy, I think the need for feminism becomes pointless. And patriarchy and power are completely intertwined concepts because at the end of the day, patriarchy is is basically a, a power structure or a structure of power relations. It conveys the existence of a societal structure of male supremacy that operates at the expense of women. So it operates much in the same way that white supremacy conveys the existence of a societal structure that operates at the expense of black people. Patriarchy is the acceptance and the perpetuation of the status quo that rely on things like traditions, values, and morals to continue to uphold this sexist imbalance of power. Sadly, patriarchy is everywhere and nowhere. The inequalities that exist between the sexes exist at all levels of society, from the law and the state, all the way down to the workplace and the home. And at the centre of patriarchy is this belief that men are superior in a whole range of ways, and that feeds the patriarchal beast. And the new religion of science that we have in modern day society can provide plenty of evidence to prove this point. What I mean by science as the new religion is just that we view science as this one-way street with no U-turns or detours, that this is the path towards advancing humanity. It's, you know, a quest for absolute and unassailable truth. But in reality, there are significant errors that happen within science and scientists are people and human errors occur. We also don't really question or recognize that many scientists contradict one another and their discussions where they do contradict each other, that doesn't come to the public. And in this way, scientists are seen as gods. And if they give us this scientific fact that we can't question it and we can't doubt it. So I think that I just wanted to make a small point on that, but that's what I mean by science is the new religion. And we do need to reserve more space to question science and challenge science because I'm not sure there is an absolute truth out there to many of the questions that science tries to answer. But we need to go back and question how natural is patriarchy? Have men dominated over women since the dawn of time? To put it simply, no. And that's according to many anthropologists and social scientists. The general consensus within academia is that anywhere where patriarchy exists, matriarchy existed before it. Now, this is going to be a bit of a history lesson. So we're going to go back to the start of human civilization, which is estimated to be about 200,000 years old. But according to historians, the dominance of men over women only has a 12,000 year old history. So what happened 12,000 years ago that shifted the power balance in favor of men? Well, about 12,000 years ago is when humans shifted from hunter-gatherer societies into a more stable and static agricultural society. And this is the point in time that we started settling down and forming communities. So at this time, there were gender roles, and that was specifically due to biology. Women spent most of their lives in the role of mother and child bearer. And in order to survive, the men were required to be physically stronger 
as they acquired the resources to defend, protect, and provide for their women. When humans were hunt hunters and gatherers, before patriarchy had flourished, it is actually believed that women were the ones who formed these communities and created these coalitions with other women and that communal childcare was the norm. And if you go back and you look at the history of language or you go to particular cultures uh, that are still living quite traditionally, it's actually found that there's not really a word specifically for your mother. There's a word for mother, but that applies to basically any caregiver in your environment. And it was really normal for women to completely share the load of work that was required to raise a human infant. And one of my favorite things that I've, I've learned while researching this is that at this particular time in history, it's also believed that there was almost no need for men within these sisterhoods. The only thing women got from these men at this particular time was sex and them providing sperm to procreate. At this time, when humans were shifting from hunter-gatherer societies to agricultural societies, men actually started living near one another. And that was a massive change from their previous way of life. During the time of the hunter and gatherer, the communities that were formed were only ever formed by women. And men during this time tended to be lone hunters and didn't often desire the company of others. The exception to that was, of course, the occasions that men returned to, to the women-run communities for their sexual release. And it's really interesting if we look at this point in time because women actually understood their power, specifically their sexual power, and they would use it to their advantage. So women actually used to withhold sex from the men in order to obtain something. And it was super common for women to do this. And I find it really interesting that, again, in researching this, one particular anthropologist by the name of Chris Knight, he actually theorized that the first word ever spoken by a human was the word no, aimed at a man, said by a woman. And I absolutely love that theory. And really, I believe it with all my being. Now, across cultures... There are so many myths that have an explanation for patriarchy. Some myths believe that patriarchy is inevitable and natural and the need for feminism is laughable, whereas other cultures have myths that suggest that women do have the ultimate power. And most of the myths that follow this thought involve menstruation and the moon as really important motifs of power. And in that latter group, of the myths where they believe that men do, uh, women do have ultimate power. Patriarchy exists in these sorts of cultures because the power that women wield must be contained and suppressed in order for the men to actually remain relevant. So as we discussed, women didn't really need men other than procreation in those hunter-gatherer societies. And sadly for most of us, we're stuck in societies that understand patriarchy as natural because Western societies ascribe to that patriarchal dominance that keeps women subordinated. And if you listen to the previous episode, my argument is that patriarchy works in conjunction with capitalism to keep power concentrated where it currently is, which is with the rich white men. 
But really, I think that believing patriarchy as a natural progression of humanity is as outdated as believing that, you know, a monarchy or a queen or a king is the divine power as ordained by God. It's just we've evolved too much to accept that. But for 12,000 years, this understanding of humanity was perpetuated and it did continue. And it's for this reason that we still need feminism to bring about a more balanced power dynamic amongst all humans on this earth. Now, if we look at the perception of women over history, we can actually see that there's been many things that have been fed to us that has just served to feed that patriarchal beast. So if we look generally at women in history, you can see that we were used as scapegoats for the ills of the world over and over and over again. Major institutions over time blamed women for so many failings of society and these narratives serve to socialize both men and women to understand the role that women are to play within society. So if you think of like the Bible and the role of Eve as scapegoat, it was her fault that fall of man happened. And, you know, if we look at that particular story, Adam fell outside any role of culpability. Full blame was put onto Eve. And that understanding of the dynamic between men and women that women has have more of a responsibility in men in so many aspects that feeds into the world that we live in today think about rape culture and how difficult it is for a woman to be believed by society as a whole when she speaks out against a man it comes right back to that Adam and Eve story and the acceptance of that and that being indoctrinated into the Bible. And we know that religion played a huge role over a number of centuries over dictating the social rules for organizing our societies. And over time, a range of institutions, not just religion, but a range of institutions has continued to feed this same narrative. And that understanding that women are more responsible than men. So if we come back to the 17th century, which we talked about last time, this is the time that we had the Enlightenment period. And this is when we saw the rise of capitalism and rationality as separate from the religious understandings of the world. And once we stepped away from the religious way of organizing, society didn't really change how we understood men and women. We still understood or upheld the idea that women were not full humans, that we weren't capable of undertaking a role outside of mother and wife. And the rise of capitalism at this time forced women to conform to that particular role and women who chose to deviate were demonized. So think about the witch hunt of the 17th century or the 18th century. It was basically just an excuse for society to punish any woman who didn't conform to their ascribed roles. And many single women who didn't have children were murdered for their single childless status, which further socialized us to understand the role that we are supposedly to play. So another institution that had a large impact on specific gender roles was the institution of marriage. And the idea of romantic love, easy for us to think that, again, that's a natural part of marriage, but it hasn't always been that way. And marriage used to be an economic decision, 
made by the families of those involved and had nothing to do with romance, love, or connection. The fact that romance as a trope was invented is just another means of emotionally manipulating women into serving her man and taking on the submissive role within the family. Even the idea of the nuclear family and our modern understanding of what a family is, which is defined, you know, nuclear nuclear family is defined as a cis mother, cis father, and two or three children. And that nuclear family setting serving as the central point to human development also served the capitalist machine that kept women with zero economic freedom and subsequently forced them into subservient roles within those social environments. Now I'm going to fast forward a little bit because you're probably over the the historical sort of anthropological take on on this particular topic. So let's come into the 20th century. Now the, the 20th century is the beginning of the 1900s. Now we know that capitalism had been in operation for about 300 years at this point. The institution of romantic marriage had been in place for less than 200 years, I think. And women in Western contexts began to stand up for their rights as humans. Because up until this point, women weren't fully understood to be full humans or full citizens of these societies. And it's important to see that the first wave of feminism is not the first time women have stood up for their rights. Going back to ancient times, there were many women who did manage to transcend their position in society and take power from men. But I do think it's also important to note that the majority of those particular stories come from non-Western contexts. So if you look at historical accounts of places like China, Egypt, uh, Korea, you see these really prominent female figures who held a lot of power. Now, I'm sure that there were many women in Western contexts that did stand up and did fight and did not conform to their assigned gendered role. But I think this also comes back to that authority on storytelling and that we don't know the stories of those particular women who stood up and fought because the history account that we have is the patriarchal account. And that is that men were the only authorities to pass on their stories and they pass that on through printed stories. And so we need to also really keep that in mind when we are looking at history as, and ask ourselves whose story or whose side of history are we hearing and how skewed is that going to be? And when we add this gendered dimension onto it, we can see that women didn't have a voice or weren't allowed to have a voice up until pretty much the 60s. And again, different contexts, different environments, different places have different timelines. But generally speaking, we still live in a patriarchy. So we still haven't advanced that much. It is important that when we look at this first wave of feminism at the start of the 1900s, that we remember that it's not the first time women stood up for their rights. But it's just the first instance of a large political movement in the West that was dedicated to fighting for the political equality of women. And this first Western wave is often referred to as the suffragette movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And it took them about 70 years of fighting before they actually secured the right for women to vote. And within that 70 years, the debate took a really racialized position. And many white women actually became part of this suffragette movement 
when they realized that black men were about to be granted the right to vote. And these particular white women were beyond offended that former slaves had access to the electoral system before they did. But many of the, the women who were really significant in the suffragette movement were actually black women. And the suffragette movement would not have succeeded in the way that it did without black women as part of that fight. But we don't hear about that again, because authority is not given to women. And at this particular time, women maybe started speaking up, but black women, that intersection of being black and being a woman, that particular intersection, they still at that time did not have authority to really speak about their experiences. And when you look at the suffragette movement now, and you look back in time, most of the stories that have come out of it are of these white women. And we can't forget how powerful and how strong-willed black women are and how involved they are in a lot of political movements that have happened over the last century. Starting in 1848, it wasn't until 1920 until women were legally allowed to vote. And by this time, the unity within the feminist movement had fractured so much because they just failed to agree on what they were actually fighting for. And this is a clear indication for the need of intersectionality because without intersectionality, you lack the unity, you lack the ability to come together. But coming together for unity is not the only reason we need intersectionality. Intersectionality speaks to privileges within minority groups. And while I've focused on the intersection of being black and being a woman, mostly in this episode, there are so many other intersections that we need to consider. Being disabled, being physically disabled or mentally disabled, being a migrant, being a sex worker, not being straight. These are all intersections. And if you embody more than one of these particular traits, then the oppression and the discrimination that you face, again, is not going to be the sum of those two things. They create a different level of oppression. And ultimately, if you're not fighting for everybody, you're fighting for nobody. After that first wave fizzled out, feminism as a topic lost a lot of traction. We had two world wars. There were, you know, bigger fish to fry at the time. And it wasn't until about the 1960s that the, the idea of feminism was brought back to the public discourse. So there was a book titled The Feminine Mystique, which highlighted the ways in which women were often blamed for their own misfortune of being subordinated. And women were also blamed for society's failings. As we already discussed, women were used as those scapegoats. And basically that that second wave in the 60s was really about recognizing women as full participating citizens with equal rights to men. Before The Feminine Mystique came out in the 60s, which was written in English, one of my sort of feminist icons, Simone de Beauvoir, she wrote her book in 1949, and I mention it in the episode about capitalism. Her book, which was super iconic, is called The Second Sex, and it was released in English in 1953. And as the title suggests, she was arguing that women are and have been considered the other sex for a significant time. And her book argued that man has been considered this default human and they've been afforded this default 
human status and that women are not full humans or full citizens capable of the independence and power that man is granted. And one thing I do find really interesting with this particular book is, and it's really telling of the patriarchal world that we live in. Simone de Beauvoir was French and she wrote this book in the 40s, releasing it in France in French in 1949. It was translated in English and released in 1953. But what's really important here is that the man who translated it in the 50s didn't translate it word for word. He interpreted it in his own way. And there was a lot of things that he completely removed, that he changed, that he added things. And the particular copy of the book that I have was actually translated by two women in 2012. And they talk about this disconnect of information and this disconnect of knowledge. And, you know, a lot of English speaking people who had read the book before this newer version came about. And it's really telling of this patriarchal world that even when women are using their own voices and words and experiences, depending on where you sit in society, if there is a man that disagrees or doesn't believe you or for whatever reason has the power to change your words or cancel the authority of your experiences, they will. And this is a big reason why we need feminism, especially intersectional feminism. So coming back to what was happening in the 20th century. So this second wave brought about the idea that women are sexual beings outside of motherhood and we're capable of existing independently of men. And this particular wave of feminism sought to raise particular issues in a framework that centered their experiences and their voices. So they worked towards criminalizing things that, you know, we can hardly even imagine like marital rape it was perfectly legal for a long time for men to or husbands to rape their wives because of that marital status they were also raising awareness on topics like domestic violence and prevalence of sexual assaults and increasing the awareness of birth control now the second wave did managed to make some strides in bringing women into a more equal position alongside men but it wasn't long before the demonization of these women took front and center of the public discourse. And that image of the hairy, man-hating, bra-burning lesbian that framed feminism in a really negative light was born out of this second wave. And this negative association of women and feminism kept feminism out of the limelight until the 90s and early 2000s. And the same negative perception of these particular feminist women really worked the same way that the, the witch hunts worked a couple of centuries before. It basically tells women, know your place or you will be ostracized from society. So we can see history repeating itself and women being the scapegoats. And it was during this time that that feminist scholar started presenting new ideas. And here we come to the inception of the term intersectionality. So coming back to that black academic Kimberly Crenshaw, she states that we tend to talk about race inequality as separate from inequality based on gender, class, sexuality, or immigrant status. What's often missing is how some people are subject to all of these and the experience is not just the sum of its parts. So she's basically saying that the oppression that you face as a woman and the oppression that you face as 
a black person, you can't just add those up and say you've got double oppression. The way that those two things work together and they do work together, and that is the intersection, changes the form of that oppression. So being black, being a woman, you can't just add being black and being a woman. You need to encapsulate both of those things and it creates a different identity marker. And that's where intersectionality really comes in, comes into play. And this particular third wave of feminism also highlighted the dominance of white women in these feminist movements. And the statement from Crenshaw recognizes that universal experiences of womanhood can't exist if your feminism is not inclusive of all women at their different stages of oppression. Some people argued that there was no need for a third or even a fourth wave of feminism, which is kind of what we're seeing now with or since the Me Too movement of 2017. And the people who were opposed to it obviously just showed a lot of ignorance to the patriarchal patriarchal institutions that continued to uphold the power imbalance. Some people believe that feminism was achieved in the 60s and 70s. And the people who believe that see that, well, women are in the workplace and they can have families and they really can have it all. And that's equality for you. What more could you possibly need? But in a globalized world, which we live in a globalized world, some women have access to it all, but this access comes at a cost for other women. And there's a really important concept that helps understand the need for intersectionality, which is the transfer of reproductive labor. So the context for this is our modern day globalized society and understanding how connected we all are. And if you think of Western countries and the opportunities that are afforded to women within these spaces, it almost always comes at the expense of other people. In this particular example, it comes at the expense, generally speaking, of migrant women. So a bit of an explanation on how this transfer of labor works. So it, it happens through a three-tier system in which mostly white women purchase the labor of women of a lower socioeconomic class, as well as more often than not, they come from a different social status. And in even more cases, they come from a literally a different place. It gives you an example of the racial division of labor within capitalism and how more often than not, you're going to see migrants working in those low-skilled, unskilled jobs, which if you listen to last or the last episode, we sort of talked about how unskilled is not actually unskilled. Unskilled is actually code for undesirable by men. So we have this racial division of labor within capitalism, but we also have this international division of labor within a globalized market. So if you think of where the majority of your clothes get made, the, the kinds of people who pick fruit, these aren't by accident. We live in an unequal world and certain people have more power and more access than other people. And again, I'm going to repeat myself a million times when I say this highlights our need for intersectionality, especially in a globalized society. And another thing that I think has been really highlighted as well is that we're going through a global pandemic. 2020 saw the world change as we knew it. And I really thought that at the start of this pandemic, when things were really going gangbusters, I saw this as a really great opportunity for us to have a social revolution. Because I really considered how gendered the world still is and 
how patriarchal and capitalistic it our society is. And if you think about it, what the pandemic really showed us was what we need in this world in order for the world to keep turning. We created this distinction between essential and non-essential work. Now, I looked at this from a gendered perspective and I looked at what those essential jobs were. The essential jobs include cleaners, which are majority women, teachers, majority women, nurses, majority women. Now, all these essential jobs are dominated by women. They're considered unskilled, so they're paid less. Now, which were considered the non-essential jobs? Bankers, we don't need you. Money's not real. Property developers, you're on stolen land. Your job is not real. All the men who work in managerial, bureaucratic roles were not needed in order for the world to keep turning. The labor that women provide, both paid and unpaid, is what we need in this world. We need intersectional feminism to recognize that women exist on a spectrum and we all have different lived experiences. And I think a big part of that patriarchal beast is making women feel as though we need to compete with each other. And that's a really big thing that I grew up sort of believing that, you know, you got to rip other women down and, you know, you're all in competition and we're all vying for the male attention. But in reality, we don't need to live in a world like that. And if you look at those feminist movements, fracturing away from a united goal is what caused their demise. So we really need to move into a world where we understand the variables of being a woman. We understand that we live in a globalized world and it is a very unequal one. But if we don't support each other, the men definitely are not going to support us. And I really truly believe that we do hold all the power in the world. Going back to, you know, before patriarchy, patriarchy came through in 12,000 12, years ago, women knew the sexual power that they held. They understood that men just want sex every now and then. And other than that, we don't need them. And I think we need to start not competing with each other. We need to start working together. And I think we actually could achieve a lot if we stopped competing, if we stopped comparing ourselves. And within that, We need to start recognizing the privileges that we do have in this world. Because without recognizing these privileges within these marginalized groups, we can't critically participate in an activism free of prejudice. Once we do that, we can subsequently lift everyone up and make sure that we don't leave anyone behind. So I didn't really get to discuss this in detail, I only sort of touched on it towards the end of the episode, and that's the idea of privilege. And that's what separates the levels of oppression along these intersections, because within particular political movements and within different marginalized groups of people, there's always a a spectrum of experiences and a spectrum of privilege, which therefore creates a spectrum of disadvantage, discrimination, and stigma. Now, I know that during this particular episode, I made a lot of references to being a woman and being black and using that as my example intersection. But I also want to just remind people that 
Different intersections could be along the lines of race, whether you're indigenous, your socioeconomic status, your gender, your gender identity, your sexual orientation, your age, whether you're disabled or abled, your spirituality, your immigration or refugee status, your language and your education. So considering all of these different identity markers, you can see already how these potential intersects actually work. I know that there's a lot of things surrounding feminism and patriarchy that I haven't even started to touch on today, but this mini series is just setting the foundation for our conversations and episodes to come. So the topics that are discussed in these first three episodes are topics that will continually be referenced to as it's obvious that they're inescapable concepts in modern day living. I just wanted to finish today's episode by reminding you that the invisibilization of the historical participation of particular bodies and identities within political movements is an attempt to erase history and rewriting history from the dominant perspective silences and invisibilizes those marginalized identities. So that really prompts us to keep in mind that it is important to recognize who's telling the story and understanding what kind of authority they have within the situation, as well as recognizing the complexities of both discrimination and stigma. So that wraps up episode two of The Breakdown. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure that you're following me on Instagram and on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Next time, join me for the final part of the breakdown series, where we're going to dissect the idea of sex positivity, especially within the context of sex work and the hierarchy. Thanks so much. My name is Tilly. It's been a pleasure doing business with you and I will see you soon.